0: Okay, let's uh, try and pick up where we left off last night. If you can remember last night. I can't. (laughs) Last night we were talking about how Sangsara in some senses represented the world for us. When the Buddha is talking about this Fathom carcass being the origin of the world and the ending of the world, he's talking about this notion of Sangsara. Remember, just to remind you again, Going round in circles. You know, the round and round of habitual behaviour that we engage in. Habits. Um, I almost tend to say habits are us. You know. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the way we think of them. In the sense of we identify so strongly with habits that we do think that they are us. Now, the Buddha's most profound teaching... Um, I'm going to read you a couple of snippets in a second. The Buddha's Most Profound Teaching is about how Sangsara comes into being. And in fact, this was supposed to be the content of his awakening. Um, so much so that there's a number of statements within the Pali Canon showing that the content of the Buddha's awakening was this description of, of a word in Pali which is um, called paticca which actually means basically dependent co-origination. God, that sounds complicated, doesn't it? Um, Hopefully I'll explain it to you as we go through. The most basic idea really to get into your heads at this stage is that dependent origination is a causal explanation of how sangsara comes into being and really relates to the second of the ennobling truths. Remember the second of the ennobling truths was that dukkha had a cause. Everything gets better. When you get that. I mean, if you just hear dukkha, then it's pretty miserable, isn't it? When you hear that dukkha has a cause, then things start to lighten up a bit. Simply because if it has a cause and you can identify the cause, and this is the whole purpose of practice, if you can identify that cause and eliminate the cause, the condition which we know as samsara will disappear. It will go out. The word nibbana that I gave, you, like I gave you last night and talked a little bit about, Nirvana or Nirvana. Nirvana obviously is the most common version of it that you'll hear and you'll even see in dictionaries these days. Nirvana is, <coughs> to put a technical gloss on it, is what's called an intransitive verb in Pali. It means that it refers to something which doesn't pass from a subject to an object. And what the word nirvana literally means is gone out. That's all, gone out. And what this really refers to is that the sustaining causes that sustained, that, that you know, kept in existence sangsara and its feeling tone of dukkha have literally gone out. These three dimensions which I mentioned last night, greed, aversion and delusion, are often referred to as three fires. So much so that in one very famous uh, discourse by the Buddha, often referred to as the fire sermon, the Buddha says everything is burning, absolutely everything is burning with the fires of greed, aversion and delusion. That's the state of the world, this is the world that's referred to in terms of the sangsaric world in the Fathom Long Carcass quote that I gave you last night. So greed, aversion and delusion are the fires which sustain sangsaric existence, this circular existence, this habituated existence. His most profound teaching is actually how does this come into being? How does this actually come to be at all? And this is the content of the teaching of Paticca Samapada, dependent on co-origination. Now, I deliberately used the word profound. I'm going to give you a quote. And this is from, a, from the long discourses of the Buddha. <clears throat> and it's right at the very start of the discourse, before he even gets into talking about it. Because I don't remember a few nights ago, I actually talked about um, his disciple called Ananda, his, his um basically his attendant. Um, well, poor old Ananda, he's not terribly bright, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, There he is weeping and wailing at the Buddha's death, and the Buddha's going, have you actually listened to anything I've said? <laughs> um, in this particular instance, um, Ananda thinks he's got it. He goes, he says, um, the Venerable Ananda came to the Lord, this is the Buddha, obviously, saluted him, sat down to one side and said, it is wonderful, Lord. It is marvellous how profound this dependent origination is and how profound it appears. And yet it appears to me as clear as clear. Do not say that, (laughs) Ananda. Do not say that. Dependent origination is profound and it appears profound. It's through not understanding, not penetrating this, that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string, covered as with a blight, tangled like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe, ill destiny, ruin, and a round of birth and death. Poor old Ananda. <laughs> you can't get it right. He really can't. <clears throat> now, you'll notice <clears throat> that the Buddha is de- deliberately using the word here, profound, which actually is a pretty good translation of the, of the Pali term. Uh, What he means by profound is really, really difficult. (laughs) What is interesting, actually, joking aside, what is interesting about what he's saying to Ananda is that for Ananda, Ananda appears to have got it. And what he's got is an intellectual understanding, probably, of it. It appears to be as clear, as clear, as he says. What he hasn't got is all its implications in terms of experience. (coughs) And that is really the practical import of the teaching, because the teaching is about experience. And I might say this, and I possibly have said this, I can't remember, that all of the teachings that be found in early Buddhism, the teachings which are given by the Buddha, are practically oriented. There is nothing there which is simply out of intellectual speculation. Every teaching that he gives has a practical dimension to it no matter whether at this stage it might sound to be rather theoretical and rather intellectual. It all is meant to be something that's seen and understood within ordinary life and particularly within meditative experience. This is where you see it. The same is true of dependent origination. Dependent origination is not an intellectual doctrine, and I really, really want to get that across to you. It is difficult to understand, but it's something that we can see, and as we go through these twelve links of dependent origination, which constitute how samsara are built up, is built up, then we will see that some of them are readily identifiable. Some of these links are readily identifiable, and there is, something, there is something that we can do about them. And in fact, engaging even in what we're doing over this week, you're doing something about some of those links. There are numbers of different versions of it, so if you do delve into the text, don't be bothered that you find uh, different numbers of links in the chain of dependent origination. Sometimes you'll find 12, and it's the 12-linked version I will give you this evening. The discourse which I just read you the beginning of, the what's called the Mahanidana Sutta, and the links, the 12 links of dependent origination, or the great discourse on the links of dependent origination actually he only talks about nine sometimes he gets down to as few as six Um, basically what he does is he adapts the teaching to the audience and to what he's trying to get across in any particular state the 12 linked version is the most comprehensive version Now, playing with the very notion of dependent origination, what are we talking about? Dependent origination. That nothing arises out of nothing. It's as simple as that. The Buddha's basic message is that nothing, to use a slightly more philosophical way of putting it, nothing arises ex nihilo. Nothing arises out of a voidness or a nothing. Everything arises from something. Now, this is a big policy statement in terms of of the times he was living in because everybody everybody believed that there was something that didn't depend on causes and conditions for its existence. So the Buddha is making a very radical statement here, not so radical in the 21st century, given scientific understanding, but in the Buddha's time, in the the religious discourses of his own era, then this was quite a radical statement because most of the Hindu traditions or what became Hindu traditions at that period believed there was something that didn't depend on causes and conditions for its existence. They gave a name to this. Some of you might have come across um, some Hindu documents called the Upanishads, might have come across this term Brahman. Brahman is the thing that's said to exist without causes and conditions and is like the kind of monistic entity that underlies the whole of the universe out of which everything is composed the buddha says i cannot find any such thing when i investigate all i can find are things with causes and conditions and so what we find in the teachings are two generalized two statements of dependent origination One a generalized statement which applies to everything and the one I'm going to go into detail with you tonight about one which applies to human psychology or to beings that have psychologies very similar to ourselves but particularly human psychology. The generalized statement goes something like this and it's very, very simple. This arises, that arises. This ceases to arise that ceases to arise. And in a way, that is a recipe for nirvana, again, for the going out. Because if the sustaining conditions, which keep us bound to our habitual tendencies in this world, to this proclivity to go round and round in circles in terms of our behavior, then if those causes are eradicated, that behavior will cease to be. It's as simple as that. Remove the sustaining causes and conditions and the behavior ceases to be. That is the Buddha's recipe for awakening. Understanding that is to understand what the Buddha is trying to get us to do. Identify the causes and conditions of the malaise that we find ourselves in and eradicate those causes and conditions. Not just eradicate them, but actually put in their place Something else. The more I study the early text and Buddhist traditions, I think it's not even a case necessarily of eradicating. By developing causes and conditions which are much more wholesome, the others simply cease to be. So in other words, if we develop generosity, kindness, friendliness, and understanding, then they automatically start to supplant greed, aversion and delusion. Even if you begin at a very, very early stage to develop these, these start in some sense to lessen the impact, to lessen the force of the greed and aversion and delusion, which govern all of unwholesome psychology. As I've said over a couple of nights, all of Our unwholesome psychology, in some senses, forms a genealogical tree that goes back to those three roots. So we can see them as being manifestations of those three roots. And in a part of the Pali Canon, which is not that much studied, unfortunately, among practitioners, and I do say unfortunately, because there's a tremendous wealth of material here, in this portion of the Pali Canon, which is known as the Abhidharma or the Abhidhamma, there is an explanation of how all of these psychological conditions go back to these roots. How they are formed. How they intermingle. How they arise with consciousness and so on and so forth. But from the message I want to get across to you tonight so far, is just simply that nothing arises without a cause. That's the Buddha's real, the import of the Buddha's message and taking us back to identifying the causes of something, then we eradicate its manifestations. So if samsara is a particular state that we find ourselves in, a particular way of being, then identifying the causes which sustain it, developing strategies which actually produce wholesome states of mind, we will displace and supplant those conditions which uphold samsara with its subsequent Dukkaring, with the Dukkaring that we find ourselves in. In other words, the distress, the suffering, the anguish, many, many different translations, but particularly the one that I've stressed so far, probably the nearest translation you can get, but unfortunately rather flabby, which is unsatisfactoriness the unsatisfactoriness that we find ourselves in. That, this is important, is testified to the numerous amount of discourses that you find in the Pali Canon referring to this particular thing. The chain itself of dependent origination starts with something called avidya, which is ignorance. Now I glossed this slightly last night and I want to spend just a little bit of time going into a tiny bit of detail with you about this. Avidya vidya is not simply lack of knowledge. Remember I said this? It was also not wanting to know. Now, in many senses, and I gave this to you slightly last night, most of you will have heard a lot of the teachings. Perhaps some of you haven't, but a lot of you in this room will have heard a lot of the teachings. You have probably read a lot of the books as well. Um, The question becomes, how much does it affect you? We can say yes to a degree, but it doesn't change our lives dramatically because we still cling to forms of behavior which are known. In other words, and let's put this in a slightly jokey fashion, just let's take the truth of impermanence. The truth of impermanence is everything is changing, and everything that comes into existence will go out of existence. Everything that is born will die, except me. I will not die. There is somehow, and I kind of give you this because I gave it to you in a slightly different form the other night, there is this residual feeling that somehow we're exempt. from this because we cling to some degree of certainty or idea of our own identity which is sustainable even post-mortem, after death. Now there are many, many species of that kind of post-mortem ideas of survival. Um, Some of them are in India, some of them are of course very familiar with ideas like the soul that you find in Christian theology and and, uh, Christian Judaic theology in general. The Buddha is basically saying nothing and no one will be exempt from death. This includes you. This very much includes you. And if we hear that, then we take that on board as that sort of embodied knowledge that I've been talking about. No matter how much we surround ourselves with books, Hear the teachings, unless we reflect on this <clears throat> rather than ignore it, then it will never become part in some senses of our makeup, part of our psyche. So we need to reflect on it, we need to take it on board very, very deeply. And this is not a cause for morbidity, for morbid brooding over it. Remember what I was saying, that Tibetan phrase, you know. One thing is absolutely certain. Death is absolutely certain. One thing is completely uncertain. When? Now, that doesn't become necessarily a cause for morbid brooding, but it does become a wake-up call (coughs) in terms of the, the when, because we never know when it might happen. This is the complete unknown. So, ignorance here is, in a way, a bit like having a pair of glasses on, which are tinted pink or blue or whatever they are, and refusing to remove them. Because I'm still clinging to the ideas um, which are somehow seen through those spectacles, through that particular thing. And no matter how much I listen to the teachings, how much... Perhaps I surround myself with the books. I sometimes think that people surround themselves with Dharma books as if they're kind of somehow by osmosis transform them. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't actually happen. <laughs> yeah, no matter how many books you've got, it does not happen. I've seen this because I've worked in departments of Buddhist studies, you know, and people surround themselves with books, and they certainly haven't changed. <laughs> um, So the whole point about it is actually reflecting on experience, reflecting on it within your life. To see impermanence, for example, I'm only giving this as one example, to see impermanence as something that is really there, really happening, not something just to upset you or annoy you. It's something that is happening all the time. So when we start talking about ignorance then we're starting to talk about a really deep-seated non-understanding. An understanding which, in some senses, isn't even allowed to be because of habit formations. Now, within the text, ignorance has a content. And these are called asavas. It's an untranslatable word, unfortunately, in English... Uh, there is lots of attempts to translate it. Um, some of the t- attempts to translate this word asava, it's a pity I don't have a board, because I'd write these things up on a board, but never mind. It's basically A-S-A-V-A, asava. Um, the attempts to translate it are usually as taints, cankers, outflows, influxes. You can see <laughs> You can see how confused the translators are. By this term, one very famous translator I actually know actually said to me once. He said, "The only thing I know that has taints are dogs' ears and roses, (laughs) and the only thing that has cankers is that as well." Now, the best translation for this—and this is not terribly nice—I'm afraid to say this is not this is not the the most pleasant of translations—is effluent. This is the crap within. Uh, Outflow has a certain purchase on this because this crap within doesn't stay within. We pour it out onto the world. Um, I, Unfortunately, every time I even talk about it in this way, I get visions of incontinence, which, which is not terribly pleasant. So in other words, we're rather incontinent with our ignorance. We pour it onto the world. And so... The kinds of asavas there are actually is the asava of ignorance itself, which is gushing onto the world all the time, but it takes other manifestations. One is the asava of sensual desire. You, know, you heard me speak about this this morning in terms of the hindrances. You know, The sensual desire, which is constantly there, constantly there wanting to be gratified. We have it in the West, as I've referred to again and again so far, in terms of the goodies which can perhaps satisfy it. But sensual desire is from the smallest things that we want to comfort ourselves with. Such as, oh, this is all too much sitting here on this cushion. I'd like a nice cup of tea. (laughs) It can be as simple as that, down to full-blown sexual desire. So it can go from these rather minor manifestations of sensuality to full-blown sexual desire. So this is part and parcel, if you like, of ignorance itself. That we're constantly searching for satisfaction through sensory gratification. We're looking for sensory gratification. Now if you think about a lot of the behaviour that goes on with ourselves and for others in the West... It's often about sensory gratification because we don't know any other way necessarily to get nutrition, to fill ourselves up, to make ourselves feel that we're being in some way in this world. Think of after a hard day at work. Do you come in and give yourself a little treat? Yeah. <laughs> I can see a few heads nodding. Who might do this? It's the sort of thing we do. We feel slightly empty after a day. And so we fill ourselves up with something which is that nice little sensory treat, chocolate or something like that. So, sensory stimulation, sensory gratification is a big part of our makeup. It's a way, in some senses, of being again through sensory stimulation. Constantly wanting more and more sensory stimulation. Now, this, of course, has um, in the West, as we see, an enormous industry associated with it you know, to keep us stimulated in different ways and of course the more and more stimulation becomes the more and more stimulation is required so from this point of view in terms of sensory gratification everybody is an addict and it doesn't mean the sort of things that we normally think of as the main addictions Everybody is an addict in some way in trying to gratify themselves. Whether it be through music, through literature, through cinema, through television, through the newspaper. We're all in some ways addicted to these forms as in some sense gratifying ourselves through them. Now this is a very compli- complex and I'm not going to go into too much detail about it. But this is one of the ways that we do it. So the very found in the sense <clears throat> of ignorance and within ignorance itself as a manifestation of it is this desire for sensory gratification. There is also desire for continued existence as well. Now <clears throat> I'll go on about this a little bit later because it has another manifestation further down the links in the chain. But this desire for continued existence is also there. You know, it's, it's there in the sense that we might you know, cling to the certainty that this being, who I am, will not go out of existence. You know, that we are so important in this world um, that we can't possib- possibly not be in some way or another. So we have that at the part of the centre, and this gives rise to all sorts of manifestations which I'll talk about a little bit later and finally we have as well, we have what's called the asava of views or the asava of opinions and opinions is probably a better translation if you like, this is not a very promising start in a way if this is the start, because it says actually where we start from is a position of ignorance, sensory desire, wanting to splash our egos all over the place in the sense of being, and just full of opinions. It doesn't seem a very good place to start from, does it? (laughs) And the other aspect of this is we're very incontinent with it all. (laughs) You know, So it's just pouring out of us. (laughs) Now, one who is liberated is actually referred to in the text as kinasava, somebody who's brought an end to the asavas. This links up with something which is the third of the ennobling truths. Many of you will know this. This is the truth of what's generally referred to as cessation or niroda. Niroda actually has another meaning. Um, It does mean cessation, but it also specifically means in Pali to stop leaking. (laughs) Again, I'm afraid incontinence comes to mind, but never mind. You know, so that actually what it means is we cease leaking our crap onto the world. (laughs) It refers specifically, and that's comes to a serious point, the reason why the Buddha is using this, and I might as well give you an explanation. The reason why he's using this is because he comes from an agrarian economy. And actually to shore up a paddy field, to stop it from leaking, was called Niroda in, in the original languages. And it was to stop, obviously, the water, which was the sustenance for the, the growth there, from leaking away, just pouring away. Now the Buddha is deliberately, and I think you heard me say this the other night, he deliberately uses these agricultural, horticultural metaphors because they would have been so familiar to the people he was talking to at the time. So it's very much a paddy field of economy. And so he's using this word of ceasing leaking. What you're ceasing to do here, though, is to cease to leak this stuff. You're ceasing to leak your ignorance, your sensual desire, your egotistical desire to be and your opinions onto the world. Now, interestingly, the opinions one, um, you don't find much mention of in the very earliest strata of the Pali text, but are actually mentioned slightly later in the Abhidhamma. But these four constitute, if you like, constitute ignorance. This is what constitutes, so it's not a simple facet. And this is the deepest aspects of the human psyche in its samsara this, in a sense, is what the practice is meant to actually get at, eventually. Now, because it's so deeply buried in the psyche, and is in almost, almost, and perhaps if you think about this, these almost appear to be human nature, don't they? Human beings like a little bit of sensory gratification, and they like to, sort of, kind of throw their being around a bit in the world, and they have opinions, of course. In fact, almost it's 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 pejorative, isn't it, to say that you don't have any opinions? You know, in this world. You'd be deeply suspicious. I think most people would be deeply suspicious if somebody didn't have views about something. What's your opinion? Oh, well, I don't have any opinions about this. You'd be deeply suspicious about it, I think. So these, and this this is the point I'm trying to make here, is that these dimensions are so deeply buried in the psyche that they appear to be something like human nature. But of course what the Buddha is denying in the sense that there is any fixed nature whatsoever. And as I keep saying to you, that is the good news. Because if that was your fixed nature, then you're stuck with it. You really are. There is no possibility of liberating yourself from it. There's no possibility other than tinkering around with the peripheries, you know, in terms of behaviour, um, of actually eradicating these traits within ourselves. So the the Buddha's important message is that we're trying to get back to eradicating those, to actually deal with those, to supplant them, to put something much, much more wholesome in their place. Now one of the most famous quotes probably about the whole path of Buddhism succinctly summed up is found in a text which is called the Dhammapada. It's the most translated Pali text. You You can get it It's translated all over the place. Heaven knows why, because it's an incredibly difficult text to translate, which is why you'll find so many variations. But within that, there's a very succinct statement, and generally it gets translated in a very similar way. This is the path of the Buddhas, to cease to do what is unwholesome, to do what is wholesome, and to purify the mind. That is the path of all the Buddhas. That is the most succinct statement. So it's not good enough simply to eradicate the unwholesome. One has to develop wholesome forms of thought, wholesome forms of behavior as well. That doesn't necessarily come easily. So sometimes, and I'll say this at this juncture and perhaps pick it up on other talks as well, sometimes behavior has to precede feeling. What I mean by that is that particularly in the West, we operate under a myth of authenticity. I can't possibly do that unless I feel it. Yeah. Yeah. How can, because to do something I don't feel is to be hypocritical. Yeah, We have that word. If I'm not doing what I feel. In fact, I remember a very good example of this years ago. I've often, again, I've often shared this in this room. Years ago, when I was training in one of the monasteries in India, and uh, one of the students, again a Western student, was saying to the teacher, getting very upset to him actually, saying to him, he says, you keep telling me to be compassionate, I don't feel compassionate. <laughs> and the teacher sort of scratched his head and said, feel compassionate? What's that got to do with it? Just be compassionate. <laughs> you know, in other words, just get down to the behaviour. And perhaps, in modern terms, if I engage in the behavior, then I set up the neural pathways which actually help me to experience what it feels like to be compassionate. So engaging in these virtues of compassion, kindness, generosity, all the things which are considered to be virtues in Buddhism, sometimes the behavior has to come first. Because actually, I would claim, perhaps think that if we we waited for the genuine feeling of compassion to arise in us, we might wait the whole of our lifetime. I'm not saying that's an absolute given, but it could be the case if we're waiting for that genuine feeling, that genuine emotion to arise spontaneously, then we could wait the whole of our lifetime to do it. What the Buddha is saying is sometimes we just have to engage in the behavior and then the feelings will come. So there's something behavioural about this as well in terms of a training. So let's go back to ignorance. Yeah, Perhaps you don't want to go back to ignorance, but <laughs> I'm going to take you back to ignorance anyway. So ignorance and its content are what we might perceive as human nature. This gives rise, this avidya gives rise to predilections in thought and behaviour. These are known as sankaras or sanskaras. Sankara is the Pali word. They are really habit, habit formations. It's often just translated by the word formations. And you can think about this. Let's forget about ideas of past lifetimes and any of the traditional Buddhist stuff, but just think about this lifetime. You have spent all your time up till this moment sitting on this cushion developing habits. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because these are ways of trying to cope with life. This is the reason why we develop habits. They become, if you like, fossilized forms of behavior that work in certain instances and then, of course, cease to work in other instances, so effectively because the situations have changed or the, the the condition that we find ourselves in is a different condition. But we continue to apply what we know. So formations and habits are what we keep falling back onto. If you like, again, in more contemporary terms, these are our default options. You know, when in doubt, fall back onto a habit. You know, this is what we do. This is why our behaviour is often circular. So formed out of the ignorance with its contents that I've given you come these forms of behaviour come become these forms of thought as well which are very very familiar they are all too familiar and as a consequence of their familiarity as, their default, as default options this is what we fall back onto in times of stress and struggle In times of difficulty, just in our ordinary coping mechanisms with daily life. And one of the things that really we need to do, if we're practitioners of this, is examine our habits. Examine the habits that we have in daily life. Remember, I joked about it and said, you know, habits appear to be ours, they appear to be our very, very condition of our being. So much so, I think I pointed out the other night, that somebody challenges your habit, you get all defensive. You go, well, that's the way I am. You know, I can't... And what the way I am, that response, implies, of course, I can't possibly change. Once a cabbage hater, always a cabbage hater. (sighs) You know, I can't possibly... How many people do you hear saying, well, you know, I happen to have this habit, but it's just sort of contingent and really, um, I don't hold any store by it. And it might actually change if I allow it to. (laughs) We don't really hear that, do we? You know, this is the way I am, (laughs) being more often than not the statement. Um, And so the sankharas are these very deeply ingrained habit formations. However, habits do not remain the same they are modified, they're changed. So the actual word sankara is related to another word in Pali, sankata, which actually means formed and forming. So out of these formations we form yet other formations, and out of those formations we all form other formations. And there's a very good word for this, a word that you will know, a word that is much abused. I'll use it in its Sanskrit form because it's mostly known in its Sanskrit form. It's called karma. And it's a word that's much misunderstood and metaphysically interpreted and done all sorts of crazy things with. And let's get it clear one thing that the Buddha does not say, that everything is karma. There's a wonderful text in the Pali Canon where the Buddha jokes about karma. Um, When asked once by one of his disciples, he said there are lots of teachers... Out there, and this is in India at the time, who are saying that everything that happens to you and everything you do is a result of karma. Is this what you teach? He's asking the Buddha this. Is this what you teach? And the Buddha says, No, it's not what I teach. Some of the things that happen to you are the result of phlegm, (laughs) some of the things that happen to you are a result of bile. And he's kind of making a joke of it and he goes through his whole list and right at the very end he says, and some of the things that happen to you are the results of your actions. You know, in other words, what he makes is a distinction between karma and stuff happening. You know, in other words, there are things which are the direct result of action with intention And there is all this other stuff which just happens to us. Now some traditions, and particularly Tibetan tradition, have this sort of pan-karmic view that everything is karma. This is quite clearly not what the Buddha said. How that tradition developed is another matter. It's something historical. But within the early text, the Buddha quite clearly sends this whole notion of everything being karma up. He sends it completely up. And saying, as I said, he jokes about it as being all these strange sort of things that can actually result. So um, It's very similar to something actually Nietzsche said. He said, show me a man's philosophy and I'll show you what he had for dinner. Because you know, it might be a result of his indigestion. <laughs> you know, it's almost that way. So the Buddha is saying that certain things are formed and continue to form other things. Now, these are particularly things with intention. And intention is the key word. Chetana is the word in Pali. Chetana means volition, will, intention, behind an action. So it's only action with intention, which is considered to be karma. What we actually receive, the condition we find ourselves in, actually, strictly speaking, isn't karma. It's what's called vipaka, fruit. It's the fruit of an action. What we then go on to do as a consequence of that fruit is karma, which will then fruit again. Notice the, again the agrarian metaphor, fruiting. Yeah. We plant seeds with our intentions and through our actions and some of those will fruit and they will fruit at different times, just like you plant a plum seed, an apple tree seed, and you know, an apricot seed, and they'll all fruit at different times. So these will fruit at different times. And that is a very small range of what actually happens to us. So the sankharas themselves are particularly habits which have been formed out of intentions. It doesn't mean that the intention is always conspicuous to us. Because even Freud identifies, obviously, unconscious intentions as well. The Buddha equally would say there are intentions which are not conscious or not conspicuous to us. They're not obvious to us in what we're doing. So intention is the key. And again, I'll say a little bit more about that at some other point. So those are the first two. So out of... I've only got through two links. Gosh. (laughs) Don't worry, there's another... Ten to go. (laughs) I'll tell you who did it in the end. (laughs) So So we've got the first two links, which we've got ignorance which giving rise to all sorts of intentional behaviour. You know ignorance here obviously doesn't mean that we still don't act with intention. It doesn't mean that we are not acting in some kind of cognizance of what we're doing most of the time so it's not fatalism it's the opposite of fatalism here so there are these formations that are arising out of and the the way this is often saying is dependent upon ignorance formations arise so it's an idea of dependence. Now, an image that's often used in the text to illustrate what Paticca Samarpada is about is of corn stooks. You know the way they stack corn? You know, so each corn stook actually supports each other. That is how you should think of dependent origination: is that each element supports each other element within it. <clears throat> the whole thing is much more complex than the way I'm going to lay it out because just simply for teaching reasons, you have to lay it out almost in a linear way, although it does form a circle here. Um, Perhaps at the end, I'll try and add a little bit of the complexity into it, just to show you how this operates. Now, the next link in the chain is what's called vijnana, consciousness. So, dependent upon ignorance arises formations. Dependent upon formations arises consciousness. And that seems odd, doesn't it? Because you think consciousness would be somewhere earlier, perhaps, in this. Come back to something I was saying about consciousness in relationship to the skandhas or or the personality aggregates, the things that go to make up the processes of what we call self. That consciousness has to have an object. the first thing, if you like, that we're conscious of in every moment is our formations. So rather than think of this thing as passing, in a sense, through time, you know, first there is ignorance, and then there is the sankharas, and then there is consciousness. And that's a kind of very linear way of looking at it. Think of this all occurring in one moment. The whole of the 12 links which I'm going to lay out are occurring within one moment. So, within this moment, the most obvious object that consciousness has as its object are its formations, are its habit patterns, its ways of thought, its ways of behaviour. It's like getting you to reflect, if you could, on what you were most conscious of, and it would probably be your dispositions. If we could get back that far, it would be very, very difficult at this stage to get back but you can reflect on this and think about it in the sense that if you were trying to think about how you were what was the most obvious thing that struck you was I want to be in this way and I want things to be this way and these are in some senses manifestations of your dispositions in the world the ways that you are in the world the ways that you form so at this moment in time and this is something I mentioned very briefly the other night At this moment in time, in a sense, you are your past, your present, and your future. So your past, your present, and future are right here, right now, on the cushion. So your past conditions your present. Your present, which contains your past, will go on to condition your future. So your future, if nothing is done about it, If nothing is examined or changed or practices are engaged in which can create the possibility of change, then in a sense there is a degree of determination about what's going to happen. That is what's so bad about habits. When habits are so deeply, deeply ingrained, it's almost, and I say almost because I don't want to put too heavy a determination on this, it's almost fated what is going to happen that seems very hard, doesn't it? Because it takes away from something from us which we feel to be very, very strongly there, which is freedom. Of course, freedom is there because you can make a change at any moment. At any moment. In Tibetan uh, Buddhism, there is a state that some of you might have come across. It's called bardo. Any come across this state? It's usually meant to represent the state between... One birth and another birth. It's literally the word bardo in Tibetan means in-between. And it's not a particularly Tibetan doctrine. It actually goes back to India. And it goes back to a particular way of thinking in India. But it meant any in-between state. Now think of it this way. This is, again, taking it back to the earlier tradition, to the Indian understanding of this. That bardo didn't represent necessarily an in-between between birth, death and rebirth what it represented was a moment of in-betweenness between one moment and another. And in that in-between moment, between one moment and another, lay possibility. The possibility of change. And in fact, in, even in the Tibetan idea of the, you know, the actually it's 49-day period, they say supposedly is between birth and rebirth, you know, birth, death and rebirth, is this 49-day period. And in this period, it's said, what happens is, and some of you might have come across it as this book called The Tibetan Book of the Dead, which again is a mistranslation of the original title. Um, it's a good-selling title, though, isn't it? The Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> yeah. But in this state of the Bardo, and as it's outlined in this work... Um, are various signs that are supposedly appear to consciousness in the Bardo state. Signs um, which one either moves towards or moves away from. So there's manifestations of so-called peaceful deities and wrathful deities and blinding lights and things like this. And, of course, rebirth takes place if one makes the wrong choices and so therefore you're reborn into a particular state usually another birth doesn't necessarily have to be a human birth according to this particular text now I want to dispose of all that all this kind of literal stuff about birth and death and rebirth in this way what you have in the in between any moment and of course it's Extremely brief, because the moments are happening extremely fast, aren't they? What you have in this brief, if you like, glimpse into the moment is choice. Choice whether to continue to follow a habit pattern or to break a habit pattern. That's where the freedom lies. Mostly we make the wrong choice. We go back to our default option. We fall back onto ways of behaviour which are known, tried and tested. And we go back to them. With the result, of course, that we end up with similar consequences in doing things. So if you have a tendency to avoid things, they come back to you. Don't they? If you have a tendency to behave in a certain way, that will have consequences which will be similar in each manifestation. So the moment of bardo, really, he's playing with this term, the moment of bardo becomes a moment of choice. Now, the coming together of consciousness and its sankharas can be a moment of choice. In other words, let's put this in English. The coming together of consciousness with its habit patterns, when we sit on the cushion we get good glimpses into habit patterns because they do their nice samsaric circular thing, don't they? They keep coming back again and again and again. And we get a choice as to whether to keep on proliferating them or to let go of them. So this coming together of consciousness and sankharas is very, very important. So dependent on sankharas, there is consciousness. In a sense, the arrow goes both ways, if you wanted an arrow here. You know, they depend on each other for their existence. I'm just looking at the time. How much more can I do tonight? Um, just one more. One more link in the chain. Dependent on consciousness comes what's called nama rupa literally means name and form, mind and body. Nama is about the closest you'll get in Sanskrit and Pali to any English word. Literally, Nama is name. Rupa being anything that takes a form, so generally represents body. Name represents all psychological contents. Now, there are many interpretations of the 12 links of dependent origination. The most traditional one, which is generally found in the Theravada tradition of South Asia... Particularly, Sri Lanka, Burma, and Thailand is what's called a three-lifetime interpretation of this. The first two links, avidya, Sankaras, ignorance, formations, represent past lifetime. The next links, the next two, li- the next links in the chain, represent the present. So the first two that we're dealing with, consciousness and Nama Rupa, represent the present lifetime. And then, towards the end of the chain, the last two links represent the future lifetime. Now, in the traditional interpretation, this is, has to be interpreted in three lifetimes because Nama Rupa gets interpreted as being, literally, the birth of a physical mind and body here where actually, again, if you go back to the original text, really look at the original text, what it is is not so much the birth of a physical mind and body as the blueprinting, and it's about the best word I can use, the laying down of a blueprint for what is going to come later in terms of physicality and mentality. And Let me just try and explain this, just spend a few minutes explaining this. Out of ignorance comes our formations. In other words, out of ignorance comes our habit Habit patterns and consciousness arise together. Now, those habit patterns and consciousness will then go on to form what is going to happen to us in the future, both mentally and physically. So, for example, if I have a disposition which makes me eat rubbish physically, then it's going to have a manifestation in the future. In other words, I've laid down a blueprint Even if I might change my diet considerably much later on, I've laid down a blueprint for something that's going to, in a sense, mature at another point. Equally so mentally, if I engage in certain behaviours mentally, um, ways of thinking, neuroses, particular fears and anxieties, I'm laying down, in some ways, a blueprint for what is going to happen mentally in the future. And we're doing that now. And this is the important thing to think about. This is why it's so important to deal with what is going on now because in some senses you're laying down the seeds for something that is going to mature much later, both physically and mentally. So if you have dispositions, both physically and mentally, to think and behave in certain ways, they're going to give rise perhaps to suffering in the future, certainly to distress in the future. And that is what's going on in Nama Rupa, this laying down. Now, it might be that we start to lay down good habits. They will mature as well as factors which lessen distress in the future. So those are the first four links, laying down the patterns for what is going to come. All of this stuff actually has been fairly uninteresting. It gets more interesting later on as to what goes on you know psychologically so ignorance almost what we would consider to be human nature giving rise to forms of behavior and forms of thinking arising with consciousness consciousness has to have an object and its object is always colored by mental factors which are actually the sankharas mental factors Buddha Ghost has a wonderful phrase for it. This is a 5th century Sri Lankan commentator. He says, consciousness never comes alone. Consciousness is like a king. It always arrives with a retinue. Yeah. Uh, a huge retinue, actually. Um, and the retinue here are mental factors. And those are the habit patterns which arise with consciousness. That continual arising, because this is all happening in one moment... Moment to moment to moment to moment to moment of this stuff arising will blueprint, will sediment something down, which will mature much, much later. So if you want a good reason for being mindful, that is it. Because you're settling setting seeds down now that will actually have consequences in later life. Perhaps tomorrow, perhaps the day after, perhaps years after but there will certainly have consequences in the future. And that is probably, I think, the most, you know, the reason for almost the imperative to become as mindful as possible about what is going on and to come back to our starting point on the first evening, what is earth is going on? That's what you want to know. What's going on? Okay, I'll cease there. And I've really over-talked tonight, so... I'll open it up for a brief period of questions, and perhaps tomorrow night we'll have a larger... Question and answer period if if there are. See if there's any questions. Yes. Um, I wanted to talk about incontinence a little bit more. (laughs) Incontinence, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just because, uh, so my understanding of some of the female imagery in Buddhism, Mm. particularly goes to Kuan Yin. That's in Mahayana Buddhism. Uh,
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and so it particularly struck me when you started talking about leaking and continents mm-hmm. being problematic and um, leaking and uh, potentially water, <coughs> um,
0: or, or somehow that being problematic mm-hmm.
1: in, in Buddhist um, um, ideology, uh, because I guess one of the things... that some of the tantric Buddhist stuff which I haven't read a lot about mm-hmm. seems perhaps different but um, a discomfort with sexuality and a discomfort with um, feminine principles mm-hmm. and so what I wanted to ask just a little bit about was um, does Buddhism always have a problem with sexuality so you, you talked about desire mm-hmm. and you explicitly used sexual lust but is there a proper engagement with sexuality so sort of, for example with um, friendliness or kindness Um, because obviously procreation would be necessary Mm at some point in the world Um, but also um, maybe this is something for another time but I don't know where to go with that but just
0: continents and water in the dream Okay that's quite quite a big question really (laughs) Let me deal with incontinence first. <laughs> um, okay, let's go back to this. First of all, one of the things that you've done is you've encompassed an enormous amount of Buddhist history in your question. <laughs> A huge portion of Buddhist history. Um, primarily, let me lay my cards on the table, and I think I've said this already, but let me say: Primarily what I'm teaching from is the early strata of texts. Um, that's where I see myself teaching these days, is the earliest strata, trying to get back to something perhaps closer to what the Buddha said. I can't actually say it's necessarily guaranteed it's what the Buddha said, but close to what the Buddha said. Prior actually to the arisal of any of the traditions. So it's looking at that earliest strata of text and in a sense teaching out of that. So that's basically where I'm coming from. When you mentioned the images of things like Kuan Yin and the feminine and all of these sorts of things, yes. By the time you get Mahayana Buddhism, you get female figures appearing very, very strongly in, uh, in the history of Buddhist iconography. Particularly, I mean, You've got Kuan Yin sitting behind me, for example. Um, she's right there. Um, and many of these figures are feminine. Um, and usually, for example, in Tantric Buddhism, which again is an even later development because that doesn't develop until about the ninth century um, in India, <coughs> you get the use of polarity sexual polarity being used. And so, for example, wisdom and compassion get gendered. You know, wisdom is gendered as feminine, interestingly, almost like the old Greek version of Sophia, you know, where it's, 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 it's feminine. And compassion gets gendered as male. And the two are seen as united and have to be united. There's all sorts of symbols and representations of this. The most classic representation of, is of, of the deities in sexual union which means the union of wisdom and compassion. So there's a lot of sexual imagery used in later Buddhism. So um, I would say that um, I personally don't see so much of a problem. I think given that Buddhism arises in patriarchal cultures, which is a completely different matter, I think there are problems there um, in terms of, of some of the imagery it's used. Because even what is within the texts, which is often... Gender-balanced, actually, in the later Mahayana texts. There's often a gender balance in them. In practice, it doesn't actually happen in, in societies such as Tibetan society and other societies like Chinese society, for example. So there's always been gender problems within that. Going back to the history of early Buddhism, is there a problem with sexuality? No, in terms of lay life. In fact, um, sexuality is seen as being very much part of lay life. But remember, of course, that um, the Buddha himself founds a celibate order. You know, it's a renunciate tradition, which again, socio-historically, wasn't an unusual thing in India. It was, actually the, it was the norm, actually, for religious movements to be renunciate movements at the time that the Buddha was um, teaching. He is requested, of course, again, to allow nuns into the order, which he does eventually do. He allows nuns into the order. And actually, interestingly, I think, in terms of the history of religious traditions, Buddhism has a pretty good record, actually, with women, because it's the only set of canonical scriptures in which you'll find um, poems by women who have become awakened, who've actually achieved the goal. This is very unusual, actually, in religious traditions. And it's canonical. It's not outside. It's not fringe or anything. It's In there, there's two sets of texts. There's one of the poems of the awakened monks and the poems of the awakened nuns. And they're kind of balanced within the text. In terms of actual sexuality, though, rather than sexual um, and gender issues within Buddhism then the early tradition, I don't think, really has a problem. It's quite clear, if you're a monk or a nun, you're a celibate. And you're celibate for a particular reason. It's that your energies are devoted to attempting this difficult task of gaining awakening. Um, In terms of lay life, sexuality is accepted as a natural part of lay life. Now, interestingly, I think a question like yours, in a way, could only arise in the Western context... Because the majority of practitioners in the Western context are lay people. We are, you know, everybody sitting here is a lay person unless you want to collect your begging bowl on the way out. Um, And probably will remain so. The bulk of practitioners in the West will remain so. And this is very unusual and actually in the development and transition of Buddhism to any culture. Um, nearly every culture, that, well every culture, I was going to say nearly every, every culture that Buddhism has ever gone to, it's been mainly the establishment of the monastic celibate traditions that has occurred first before really the diffusion of it out into the lay population. Within this culture, within Western culture, it's the opposite way around almost. We've got small enclaves of monasteries and monks and nuns and that, but actually they're relatively small in comparison with the bulk of practitioners in the West who are lay people. So issues about sexuality become a natural part of it. And in that sense, I think that Buddhism does have quite a lot to say because it has morality around sexuality. It's not a heavy-duty morality around it. Um, I mean I can go into this perhaps another evening because it will take too long I'm just aware of the time this evening um, but it's seen as being a natural part of lay life and there are discourses where sexuality is mentioned for example I mean, and I can point you in terms of reading if you want to read some more about this issue so um, my kind of answer to does Buddhism have a problem with sexuality is yes and no really and I'm not being Hedging my bets here. In one sense, I think it does in terms of traditional patriarchal societies. On the other hand, I don't think it does in terms of its textual tradition, um, um, its tradition in general. Um, I think there needs to be far more understanding of it within a Western context. And this is something which is developing. we kind of it's like watch the space, you know, because. We're we're developing, in a sense, a Western Buddhism at this moment in time, which will include probably questions around issues like that, questions about the position of women in Buddhism, which, of course, within those patriarchal cultures, is taken as well. You know, women are kind of secondary, and this is instantiated often in languages as well. In there, you know, where I think of you know within Tibetan society, where the feminine is always referred to in the diminutive. Yeah, it's always referred to in the diminutive. So it's right there in the language. You know, no matter if you wanted to change it or not, your language is always saying that women are kind of inferior. Um, now, we don't have that, and language is changing continuously in regard to sexual and gender issues in the West. So I think it's, it's very much watched this space in what's happening to Buddhism in the West. So I don't know if that kind of responds to part of your question. It's a very interesting <laughs> I think the second half will take me far too long. What I'd like you to do, though, if you could ask that, raise the second part of your question tomorrow night, if you can. And I'd like to, Because I would like to respond to it. I'm just aware that time is running out and I'd like to give people a break before sitting again. And just, just to open it up to see if there's any quicker questions that I can respond to. Or have you all just had too much? <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> Nick. Can I just um, be clear, you were saying that, maybe I've misunderstood, that the Buddha was saying that there are no such things as human instinctive drives? Yeah,
0: there's no such thing as what I would call um, unchangeable drives, anything that was constituting a human nature that was not subject to change. So, in other words, there might be drives, yes. It's quite clear that there are drives in human behaviour. But whether those are unchangeable drives, that they're always going to be there, that is what the Buddha is denying, that there is anything unchangeable, anything which is totally intractable within the human psyche. If there were such things, then it would make the awakening process incredibly, incredibly difficult, if not impossible, yeah, if there couldn't be aspects that could be changed. So things like this, you know, the need for food <clears throat> to procreate, you know, I kind of always thought of those things as being fundamentally, um, yeah, you know, part of human existence. Mm. Human. I... So you have these things mm. which are kind of like hardwired into you, but nature's hardwired that into you. Mm. So but even even those And I don't think the Buddha's really talking about that because he's really talking about much more about the pathological elements of our behaviour, not things like satisfying thirst and hunger and things like that. What he's really talking about his behavior or aspects of the psyche which will bring about dukkha. That's really what he's involved in. So even for example, if there is a drive to procreate sexuality then that doesn't always, as we know, doesn't always take the same form. You know, it's subject to psychologisation, if you like, because it's worked through the human mind. It's subject to being something which is destructive or something which, you know, coming back, which actually can be very wholesome in human life as well. You know, so what he's saying is there is no unvarying form that anything takes. And I think... I would actually say that the early text in particular bracket out. They don't really speak about things such as the simple drive for food and things of that sort. Although it is recognised that there is a need for nutriment, for example, physical nutriment. But the Buddha doesn't go on to then discourse on, a, on that. Then it goes on to about other forms of nutriment which feed unwholesome aspects of our character. So I think it's... You know, it's <clears throat> The Buddha is dealing with a very, very specific problem, you've got to remember, which is the problem of Dukkha. And everything he says is really directed towards that problem. So he's looking at the pathology of the human mind, the pathology of the human instincts, and and the drives. So even if there are instinctual drives, then often they can take a wholesome or an unwholesome form. And I think that's really what it's about. They are not unvariable, they're not intractable. So even if we have some of these drives, then they can be directed into much more wholesome ways. I'll take the one that came up as a question the other night, desire. Desire is seen primarily in its form as as having an unwholesome character to it. However, the desire for liberation, which in a sense is the sublimation and utilisation of the same force or Um, energy, if you want to put it in that way can be seen as something wholesome and positive if directed towards that so things are not, if you like completely tied down to being one thing and one thing only okay, I think I better draw a line under it tonight and uh, thank you all for listening (laughs) thank you for listening